Welcome back to another episode of Triple G Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Kerr, a.k.a. The Ginger, and we are here on a busy week coming off of week six of NFL football. We've got lots to cover. We are going to be joined by Locked On Ravens podcast host, Kevin Oystriker, who will be helping us preview a big week seven matchup between the five and one Baltimore Ravens and the four and two Cincinnati Bengals. So he's going to help us preview that big matchup in the AFC North. We're going to talk about what we learned in week six of the NFL football. And after break, we're going to cover the world golf, world of golf as we wind down on the LPGA and Champions Tour and we wind up on the European Tour and the PGA Tour coming off a hot week of picks from uh, yours truly, the Ginger, who cashed in on two big picks. So we'll cover that after break, but let's get into it right now about what we learned this week after week six of NFL football and the first things first and I was reminded of one thing but I want to tell you what I learned and I learned about what is a scoragami folks we had our first scoragami of the NFL season and you may be asking yourself Kerr what in the heck or the ginger what in the heck is a scoragami a scoragami is a score that has never been produced in NFL history there's been a thousand and fifty six score combinations that have been produced over all of the years of NFL football and this week we had a score that was never produced and that score was 38 to 11 in the Los Angeles Rams and uh, New York Giants football game in the bloodbath, you could say, as the Rams absolutely destroyed the the Giants 38-11. to Cooper Cup was unstoppable in that matchup, and Matthew Stafford uh, continues to beat up on some of those softer teams, no doubt. What we were reminded of this week was it's any given Sunday, and folks, I know you know it, uh, we've all watched the movie and we've seen it and it's kind of a tagline and it's a little bit cheesy, but it's true. Listen, um, 11 overtime games throughout the first six weeks of NFL football here. All six weeks have produced at least one overtime game and week six specifically produced three overtime games and a couple games that were pretty close. And if coaches and teams made different decisions, we could have had ourselves four or five overtime games. Um, so it was absolutely insanity in terms of uh, what happened out on the football field in week six. I felt it was feast or famine. It was either a blowout or the game was going right down to the wire, right into overtime. But when you start to look at it, um, you know, every, nobody gave the Seahawks any chance uh, going into um, Pittsburgh, Heinz Field, Sunday night football, 23-20. That game could have went either way. Uh, without TJ Watt, the Steelers are not walking away with a victory there. So um, that was a tight game. Then you had uh, the Patriots and the Cowboys. Oh, how can the Patriots stop this high-powered uh, Cowboys offense? And how are they going to keep up and score? Well, they scored. And they went back-to-back with Trayvon Diggs and Mac Jones and all of the big plays that happened there within the last two minutes. Another tight game that went down to the wire. 
Vegas and the Broncos. Who would have thought that Vegas, after all of that mess with John Gruden and all the shenanigans, that um, they would walk into Denver and absolutely spank them 34-24. And then we have Cliff Kingsbury sitting on the sidelines, much like Kevin Stefanski had to do last year, and the Arizona Cardinals with no head coach, no offensive coordinator, nobody in the building that had actually even called NFL plays. I was absolutely shocked to learn about that on Friday night and seeing that they had no backup plan, but it didn't matter that um, this Arizona squad was ready and walks in and beats up on a banged-up, beat-up Cleveland squad, um, which we talked about, Darren Irvine and Mary Kay Cabot previewed last week. Both thought it would be a much closer matchup, I'm sure, than the 37-14 final that it was. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins, Kyler Murray showed up and showed out. And like I asked Mary Kay Cabot, I think this Baker Mayfield injury is going to be something that we are talking about here for the foreseeable future. Um, It's just every hit, every play, he looks in discomfort. He's getting it popped in and popped out underneath that blue tent on on a, you know, quarterly basis here. So I think it's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. The Eagles almost make a magical comeback. I know it seems like moons ago against those Bucks on the Thursday night game to open up week six and to end week six. An absolutely phenomenal Bills-Titans matchup. My beloved Bills go for it on uh, fourth and inches from the two-yard two line 12 seconds to go or the three-yard line 12 seconds to go to end off week six. So, And what a segue into... Our last topic of what we learned, and that is that, that this game is changing, folks. And it's it's exactly what we talked about. Listen, Dallas going forward on four fourth downs. The Chargers, four fourth downs. Miami and Cincinnati, three and four fourth um, time, three times and four times on fourth down. The Rams, two for two on fourth down. It is happening in a week-by-week and a game-by-game basis that there is five or six fourth-down tries in a game. You know, two or three tries from each team and, and situations. And depending on the team, you, you get the Chargers and the Baltimore, you may, Baltimore Ravens, you may see, see seven or eight fourth-down um, conversion tries or opportunities. Um, it's a different game, folks, and, and teams are, are using the analytical data um, and the win probability charts, if you haven't had an opportunity, Pro Football Reference has got a great win probability chart. And you can really kind of figure it out on your own. You you enter your original data and then you enter right after if they were to get that and where they would be um, by getting the first down or, or scoring the touchdown. And, you know, there's a couple of situations that, that I've had off air with friends of mine and colleagues of mine, um, i.e., the, the Jaguars on uh, on the uh, Thursday night or a couple weeks ago against Cincinnati and Dutch and I, you know, they go for it with, uh, you know, I think three seconds to go in the half on the one-yard line of Cincinnati to for an opportunity to go up 21 nothing. That's that's the new era. Brandon Staley and the Los Angeles Chargers going for it on their own 31, 34, 36-yard line consistently. And, and they're following the data through. And the, w- the way I look at it is is that it, it's almost like that three-point argument uh, in the NBA a few years back when, when that really got emerged. And, you know, if I hit 33% or 32% of my three-pointers, it's like shooting 42% from, from the two-pointer field, uh, from the field. 
So, you know, there, yes, there's game situations and there's game feel and you, and you do have to take some of that into account. But what we're seeing here is as that these coaches are, are now trusting some of this data and really starting to affect the way not only their game plans are being called and, and the way their game script script is going. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, if it's third and seven, they're, it's not, you know, the eight yard button hook route or the, you know, the nine yard dig route in behind the, the first set of linebackers um, or, you know, the quick slant and try to get up, get the eight, eight yards or nine yards for the first down. You're seeing, uh, plays to the flat, plays that are are designed well short of the first down markers for an opportunity that they know that they're going to be going for it on fourth down. So now they're setting up for a fourth and two, fourth and three, and they're, they're understanding and okay with that situation. So not only are you affecting your game plan, but you're also affecting the defensive game plan because now what happens on that that third down? Right. Traditionally, you know, hey, let's force them into third and long and get them off the field and make it punt it. That's no longer the case. So now are you more aggressive or less aggressive knowing that that, you know, they're going to be going for it uh, on that uh, on that fourth down? And and you're right. And what you're going to see is situations like we saw with this Chargers game where, hey, they went one for four on fourth down. And what happened? The Ravens took advantage of it and it was a blowout. So you're going to see games like that, but you'll also see situations where the Chargers play the Chiefs and they go for it a lot. I believe four four of six, I believe they were in that Chiefs game. Um, you know, a lot came down to the, to the end there, but they're going to go for it in those types of situations. And when they do go four of six or five of six, you're going to see them beat teams or be able to contend with teams, and you may see some of those upsets. So it'll be interesting to see here, you know, the likes of of the Chargers and um, the Bills and the Rams and some of these teams that I feel are kind of moons ahead of teams like the Bears and, and the Giants. Like the Giants, just no analytical department. Joe Judge wants nothing to do with it. And so it's surprising because coming from the Belichick tree, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick made a career out of going for situations and, and really trying to give it a go. Um, i.e. the New England back against Indianapolis, you know, back in the day. So, you know, we're really starting to see, and it's not a fast shift, but we're starting to see that shift now um, in terms of game planning, game calling, all those types of things where it's really starting to affect um, the calls and, and it's the next step for for us as fans is to shift our mind state that hey the the correct call with 12 seconds to go on a fourth and inches is not to kick the field goal especially when your defense hasn't stopped anybody in the last five or six possessions because really you're just trading your a great opportunity to win the game to to hope on a coin flip to get another one so, you know, that may be your best opportunity to go ahead and, and win the game there. So, you know, that's where we're starting to see that shift. That's where our mind state as fans has to shift to. But it's absolutely great to see. And, um, you know, I hope it continues because it makes it uh, real interesting, real fun. And um, let's flip over now into 
um, our NFL game lines. We got a big week seven card here ahead of us, and um, it'll be interesting to see now as teams really are starting to play for their playoff lives and really trying to set themselves up here for a run. And let's start to go through the card. We'll start on Thursday night as the Browns, the beat up and banged up Browns, no chub, no hunt, going to be tough against uh, the Broncos. But here's the perfect example of what I was talking about. Two of these AFC teams, Broncos now fall have fallen, lost three straight. Uh, the Browns are in trouble. They're at 3-3 three and three now with a tough AFC North division. They cannot afford to fall behind here and lose this one against the Broncos. And nor can the Broncos in a tough AFC West. So this is a big game for both teams. Browns open up at 3.5 point favorites, 42 on the uh, over-under. Browns defense is banged up. I like, the, I like the 42 over here. Interesting matchup here. Um, not a sexy one that you would circle on your card, but the Atlanta Falcons, 2-3 and three Atlanta Falcons versus the 1-5 and five Miami Dolphins. Brian Flores, I think, is coaching for his job here over the next few weeks. If this thing really gets off the rails and they can't beat uh, Atlanta and start to make a run here, they're going to have Buffalo coming up in a couple weeks. In Buffalo, that's going to be a tough matchup. They lose this one against Atlanta, and they're going one and six up to Buffalo, and it gets to one and seven. Um, look out! It's uh, do you trade for Deshaun Watson at one and six, one and seven? At that point, is there really a point? Uh, you can't expect him here to come off the street, learn a new system, and and win you ten games in a row. So, um, it'll be real interesting to keep an eye on that that um, situation down in Miami. They went to Tua Tonga Bailoa in London. He looked better, but he didn't look great. Uh, still only put up 20 points, so just a pedestrian Miami offense. I know they didn't have all their weapons, but offensive line is still in shambles. So a big one for Brian Flores and his um, coaching, I think, because I think it's getting to the point where you may see um, some questions being asked in terms of uh, the future moving forward for him, Tua Tungabailoa, Brian Flores, and and the Miami Dolphins. Now on to what some would say is uh, the matchup of the week across the NFL, and that's the 3-3 Kansas City Chiefs got back on track against the Washington football team against the 4-2 physical, rough, and tough, and some would say the MVP of the league and Derrick Henry um, and those Titans. Chiefs open up at five and a half point favorites as uh, road favorites. I think that's a crazy high number. And the 56 and a half, um, surprisingly, I wouldn't be surprised if it's an over. These two defenses are not stopping anybody. I see this much like the Bills and Titans game, 34-31, 35-32, something like that. I would hit the over even at 56 and a half. And... Much like that Broncos-Browns game, it's a must-win for both of these teams. Uh, Tennessee, not as much because they're still going to be win or lose. They'll be in the driver's seat in the south. But, you know, the Broncos win here and those Chiefs lose. And then, you know, the Chargers get back on track. The uh, the Las Vegas Raiders keep rolling here. And it's going to be a tough sledding here for those Kansas City Chiefs to try to fight not only divisionally, but even into the uh, the wild card race. Um, it'll be interesting to see. So that's a big one to keep an eye on. 
And now on to what I call the grudge matches or the return matches. And there's a few of them, uh, specifically the and probably the most uh, the biggest one or most high profile one is uh, in Houston and Arizona as J.J. Watt and uh, DeAndre Hopkins return to Houston. They open up at 17.5 point favorites, 47.5, which is crazy when you think about that. 17.5 point favorites and a 47 on the, on the, uh, on the game line. So when you start to look at um, team totals and, and what you see the game script and scoring to be, uh, you're looking at 32 to um, you know 16 type of thing uh 30 30 30 to you know 14 so it'll be it, it's it's that's a shellacking so they're predicting that to not even be close i don't think it's going to be close houston's uh you know they cut andre roberts they cut be uh uh mckinney middle linebacker so they are shedding some some salary cap space and really just starting to strip this thing right down to the bare bones and um, it's going to be a long season for uh, the Houston Texans and those that Texan fan base. Jared Goff returning against Sean McVay. We heard McVay come out and say that uh, he botched the communication portion of that trade. So uh, yeah, that will be a big matchup. We've seen Dan Campbell come call out Jared Goff and uh, believes that he needs to play better. So real interesting matchup. And I circled even the Bucks and the Bears. Hey, there was a for a long time there was a possibility we thought um maybe Tom Brady was on his way to Chicago um to take over the historic Bears franchise and bring them to uh the promised land well he went for greener pastures and warmer pastures down to Tampa and look what happened he's going back up against the Bears I know there's a portion of that Bears fan base that will not be happy another big favorite on the board th- opens up at 13 47 on the game total as well so very similar uh, game script and spread uh, to that uh, Arizona Houston game Indy San Fran um, there was a lot of talk maybe that Carson Wentz would head out west to the bay and join Kyle Shanahan and uh, possibly restart his career he ends up in Indy and another big game for both of these teams a must win Indy you know they they got the Titans after after playing San Fran on Sunday night. San Fran's a four point favorite. Then they got the Jets, Jags, and Bills. So if they can win this one, even if you lose to uh, to the Titans, even though it's at home, you beat you, you handle your business against the Jets and the Jags. And listen, that's you're you're three and one. You're you've crawled all the way back after a horrendous start and blowing that Monday night game against the Ravens to five and five, and you're in Buffalo with a chance to really turn your season around. Um, come week 11 so a, a big game for Indy they really cannot afford to drop this one nor can San Fran with that uh, with that NFC West the Rams are boat racing everybody right now but you've got to be able to keep up with uh, the likes of the Seahawks who you know who aren't gonna who aren't gonna give up who are on Monday night at home against uh, the Saints or uh, I believe at home yeah let me check that uh, five point underdogs 43 and a half is the game total there so that will be a real big matchup can Jameis Winston come into town and beat Geno Smith we know uh, what happened on Sunday night in a tough loss um, in Pittsburgh for Geno and you know watching him on the sidelines it really seemed like um, 
he wanted more out of that last drive and the play calling and the, the third down screen, kind of the, the wave the white flag. So are they going to open up the playbook for him? Ken Sanfran, Jimmy Garoppolo returning, um, two big matchups for two uh, NFC West teams. And the Saints got to keep things rolling. I know they are in a tight spot um, coming off of a bye. They're 3-2, and two, so it'll be interesting to see here. Um on Monday Night Football, what happens? But two interesting matches on, on Sunday and Monday Night. Two matchups that we don't always get to see. Some like it, I really do, and some don't. But to me, let's get over to our biggest match, our biggest game of the Week Seven slate, and that is the one o'clock start between the five and one Baltimore Ravens and the four and two Cincinnati Bengals. Let's get over to Kevin Oystriker. All right, Triple G listeners, let's give a warm welcome to host of the Locked On Ravens podcast and managing editor of Ravens Wire, always loves to talk football, first time on the Triple G podcast, Kevin Ostriker. Kevin, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk football. I do love talking football, and even with me covering the Ravens, the NFL in general, it's so exciting this year, so much unpredictability this year, and part of that does have to do with the Ravens. No, there's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, the NFL's always made it quite clear that they've, uh, they enjoy parody, and and obviously, as we we sit here on uh, on Tuesday, uh, October nineteenth, and we've got four or five teams at four and two, and and, and your Ravens at uh, at five and one, atop of that AFC. There's a lot of parody, no doubt. So, yeah, it's all this different stuff about especially with the injuries the Ravens have, have had to deal with over the course of this whole season. I mean, losing their running backs, losing their star cornerback. There've been so many injuries, but again, this Ravens team is at the top of the AFC at five and one. So, you know, some people had kind of written them off, but here they are still proving that they're resilient and fighting through everything to be a top team this year. Yeah. You know what? And it's, it's a testament to, to John Harbaugh and that culture and, and just that mental toughness that, you know, is going to happen when you come up against a Baltimore squad, no matter what year it is, um, what time frame from, you know, Ray Lewis to, to, to current day. Now um, it's just a culture that John Harbaugh seemed to install inside the, the building and inside the facility and inside the team. So uh, moving forward to this week, Kevin, or the week that just passed, shall I say, um, how did these Ravens slow down the high powered, offense and Justin Herbert the superstar everybody had anointed him to you know go into the Pro Bowl and you know can he play the home Super Bowl at home at at SoFi Stadium and you know the Ravens show up and and hold him to six points and and pretty much lock him down yeah I think one of the big things was getting off to a fast start now that has to go back to the offense but you know the defense really never let Herbert and that offense get anything going, which I think is really impressive because when you look at the Ravens and the teams that they had to play early on, when you look at how Los Angeles was playing and the teams who you would say, all right, this is going to be the game where Baltimore gets it together defensively, you're maybe looking at Las Vegas or Detroit or maybe Indianapolis, but it's against an offense that has Austin Eckler and has Keenan Allen and Mike Williams and, and all these stars on it. And what they did was, I think part of it is just how complex this Baltimore defense is. For young quarterbacks, particularly rookies, second-year guys, maybe even some third-year guys who haven't seen this Ravens defense in person. This was Herbert's first time playing against this Don Martindale-led defense. Their defense is so complex, they are a very high-blitzing defense to the point where they will put 
seven, eight, nine guys at the line, one play, they'll send everybody. And the next play, they'll drop all but three into coverage. So for young quarterbacks, that can be a bit confusing. Going back to what Justin Herbert did in this game, at least, you know, 22 or 39, 195 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Baltimore's opponent in week seven, the Cincinnati Bengals, Joe Burrow played this Ravens defense for the first time during his rookie year, and it was his worst game as a pro. The Ravens sacked him seven times. So I think part of it had to do with that, but also just disciplined football. I think Marlon Humphrey played really well. Clays Campbell's been playing at a great level. Josh Bynes stepped up and played really well next to Patrick Queen, who has struggled a little bit, but even he, before his injury, he was kind of in and out, played very well. So it's about the depth that they have, and even though they've lost a lot of players on defense, I think they're now starting to put it together because it can be tough to – bounce back from losing a player like Marcus Peters or not having a player like Derek Wolf. So it's just about figuring stuff out. And now as we're getting further and further into the year, I think we'll start to see a few more defensive performances like this one. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. Wink Martindale always seems to, uh, you know, he's very creative on that side of the ball. And like you said, very complex. So um, as, as you, you know, plow through a, an 18 week NFL schedule as the quarterback, um, it's not something that you're going to see, you know, on a weekly basis, a defense that that that's complex. Over to uh, the the offensive side of the ball, I, I wanted to talk on a, on a couple points here with you, Kevin, and get your thoughts. Um, because to me, like you said at the start of all this, with all these injuries, here we are with the Baltimore Ravens as as a top five offensive team. Uh, when you look at the uh, the team rankings today, how is Lamar playing at this level? you know, how has he developed so well in the pocket and, and emerged as a, you know, a pocket passer alongside, you know, all that scrambling and running ability? Yeah, well, I think it's, it has to do a lot with the belief of his teammates and of his coaches of the organization and what Jackson brings to the table. Coming out of college, he, he was very raw as a passer, not to say he couldn't do it, but there, there was work to be done. And I think a lot of people took that and they saw the rawness of his passing game and said, well, he can't throw the ball which is a huge overreaction. And look, I mean, he, he wasn't perfect coming out of college. He's still not perfect now. But for example, from year three to year four, this is his fourth season. Mm-hmm. A lot of people expected him to take a massive leap. And so far he's doing it because some of the narratives, and, and look, there have been plenty, but some of the narratives surrounding Lamar Jackson and this team, you know, you might've heard him before. It's if you force the Ravens to throw, you win the game. If you can stop their run game, you win the game. If they're down early, they can't come back. So Lamar Jackson has taken all of those and teams over the last couple of weeks have focused in on the Ravens run game and pretty much stopped it, or at least made it rather ineffective And Lamar Jackson. I mean, you can go back to Indianapolis in week five, that primetime Monday night game. There was a 442 yards is unbelievable 86 percent completion percentage he is doing things that he has not done in his nfl career so far and this is the leap so many people were expecting out of him he still has you know a couple areas to improve upon his deep ball accuracy has gotten better but it's not perfect yet decision making still kind of the turnovers have crept back a bit this year that they're not a massive issue but they're definitely not up to the I think the standards we saw during his second and third seasons, his rookie year, he he was turning the ball over a lot. Yeah. But I think that this year he he just looks he looks calmer. He he looks more poised in the pocket. He he looks more confident in his abilities. And it's all again goes back to his teammates and his coaches in the organization believing in him. Because if you want to go all in on Lamar Jackson and you want to draft a player like Lamar Jackson, you do have to go all in on their talent and on their skill set and build an offense around them. You can't kind of go 
with kind of like a, a half put together product and say, well, if it doesn't work, we can pivot easily. They went all in and now they're reaping the benefits of a player who has really improved and a player who has the backs of his teammates and whose teammates have the backs of him. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? I was, I was guilty of, of being one of those, uh, one of those people you talked about that, that really was quite critical of, uh, of Lamar Jackson. And actually last week on our show here, um, kind of gave a shout out to Lamar and, and kind of let our listeners know how high of a level he is playing at, but you're right. Um, the turnovers is probably the one thing that you can still kind of point at this year and go, okay, we could see some, some more improvement there. No doubt. What role does Greg Roman have in this, uh, Kevin? I, I know he's, he's, developed this offense and there's been a lot of critique of Roman in Baltimore over the last couple seasons and and a lot of people probably wanted him to be out the door Um, but now we see this you know re-emergence of Lamar and back at this MVP level Um, have we seen a shift in the offense uh, that you've seen or is it just continuing to to build and add on what was already there yeah I think it's both honestly you're right Greg Roman has has faced a lot of criticism over his time in Baltimore. And the thing with Greg Roman that a lot of people point to is you go back to his days in San Francisco and even with Buffalo mm-hmm. and the quarterbacks he's worked with, you know, kind of mobile quarterbacks, Colin Kaepernick and yeah, Tyrod Taylor. Taylor. Yep, That's exactly. Right. So with those quarterbacks, they all had one, the, the offense had one really, really good year. And that quarterback one really, really, really good year. And then the next year, the offense kind of fell off of a cliff a little bit. So in 2019, you saw that historic rushing offense, Lamar Jackson take the league by storm, his MVP year unanimous. And then in 2020, the offense struggled. The pass concepts weren't really unique. Guys were running into each other. The run game was still amazing, and Greg Roman's been a phenomenal builder. He's constructed some of the best rushing offenses in NFL history, the Ravens included. But this year, it seems like he's adjusting in-game better. There have been some questionable quarters, for sure, from Greg Roman. Again, it hasn't been a perfect product but I've been very impressed with his ability to adjust a lot better than he had been in 2020. And part of that is continuity between a quarterback and their offensive coordinator. If you go back to the Joe Flacco days in Baltimore, Joe Flacco, I don't remember the exact number, but it was so many different offensive coordinators. It felt like one every year. You can, you can talk about Jim Caldwell, Cam Cameron, Mark Tressman. I mean, there are so many names you can throw out there. Marty Morningwagon is found a year before Jackson actually took over. But now Roman has been there, and the Ravens have constructed an offense surrounding Roman. And also the new coaches they've brought in, T. Martin, Keith Williams, two offensive-minded gurus who have been great for the wide receiver room. Lamar Jackson now has pass-catching weapons around him. And the offense that Roman has constructed, we're now starting to see what it can look like, not just with a great rushing attack, but also factoring in a great passing attack that teams have to account for. Mm-hmm. Um, t- you know, talking about the past, let's flip over to to that dynamic run game, run game of Greg Roman and and the Ravens. Something that we saw this week, and I wanted to kind of ask you uh, ask you about it. We saw, uh, if you will, a four headed monster. Uh, you know, in terms of the run game and, and a split between Latavius Murray and Devonta Freeman, and and now the emergence of Le'Veon Bell, and and then you got your number one rusher in, in Lamar. Um, are we going to continue to see that, or do you feel they'll eventually end up riding a hot hand, whoever kind of emerges from the pack, if you will, in terms of one of those three running backs? Or do you think it'll be a three-headed monster with Lamar um, as the fourth uh, throughout the rest of the season? Yeah, I feel like it could be a little of both. The Greg Roman had talked about before the year how 
he didn't want it to be a bell cow situation where one one guy was getting all the carries losing jk dobbins and gus edwards it, it was huge for this team dobbins was supposed to have a huge massive breakout year this year gus edwards has been as reliable as ever and with him heading into his fourth year he was expected to take another leap and this wasn't like the ravens had like two months this happened two months for the regular season and all of a sudden you can be like, okay, we're going to work through it in the preseason, figure out where guys fit in. This happened like 10 days before the regular season started. So they did not have a ton of time to work with guys and, and bring guys in. So far, everything's been, I think, as I was anticipating, kind of a slowish start to the year. But against the Chargers run defense last week that, you know, was worse than the NFL coming into this game, it was it was kind of like, all right, if it's not against the Chargers, who are you going to get on Who's track it? again? Yep. So exactly that point where the Ravens against Indianapolis in week five, they averaged 3.4 yards per carry in week six against the Chargers. They turned that around and averaged 4.9. And it was very even. You know, Devonta Freeman and Latavius Murray both get nine carries. Lamar Jackson and Le'Veon Bell both get eight carries. So they were doing a, a lot of things with the, all right, we're going to kind of get in a, in a committee here, the, the three-headed monster, four-headed monsters you were talking about. Now, Murray got injured in this game, and it, it feels like he's going to miss this week's game against Cincinnati maybe a bit more. So maybe Tyson Williams becomes more of a conversation point and, and he gets another shot. But it does seem like Baltimore is moving towards and, and has been doing the running back by committee, which, you know, is great for their team because you don't have to run a guy out there. And then by the fourth quarter, they're worn down. But for fantasy purposes, people might be scrambling a little bit. Yeah, no, no doubt about that for sure. Kevin, what's the feeling like, to, like in Baltimore right now? Um, is there a belief that, you know, this is going to be their number one competitor as we approach the Cincinnati game. Um, because I know in the AFC North, sometimes that, you know, the Bengals have become the the little stepbrother or the little brother, if you will. And almost like Cleveland was to, to Pittsburgh for a while in terms of, and Baltimore for that matter, where I felt Baltimore and Pittsburgh didn't, not that they didn't respect those franchises, but they, they kind of knew a, you know, to be the champ, you got to beat the champ and you haven't beat us yet. So, you know, don't worry about it yet. You're, you're not there yet. What's the feeling like in Baltimore? Is it, is it that feeling where it's like, ah, this is the same old Bengals. We don't got to worry about this. Or do they feel that, Hey, this is, this squad is legit and they got a chance to come in here and, and, you know, beat us if, if we're not on our game. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult division, and by difficult, I mean one of the toughest in the entire league. I think the one-two punch, and you know you can rank these wherever you want, is is the NFC West and the AFC North in terms of the best two divisions in football right now. And 100%, part of that yeah. has to do with the fact that Cincinnati is on a tear. And I know a lot of people were looking at Cincinnati this year and saying, oh, they're a couple years away. And I still think that's true. But they are doing so many things this year that not a lot of people anticipated. You know, really, really good football. Joe Burrow slinging the football really well. Jamar Chase has been a great addition for them, and he works their deep field really well. On defense, they've added a lot of people. So it's not that, like, being a few years away is a bad thing. And maybe, look, Cincinnati will surprise everybody and, like, win the Super Bowl this year. Who knows? But I do think that they're on the right track, definitely. And this this is what they're showing, is that they have they have the pieces if they can continue to build – then it becomes, all right, there's another great team in this AFC North. And I think Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Cleveland are going to be dominating this division for the last or for the next couple of seasons. Pittsburgh has to figure out their quarterback situation. They have a great defense, good wide receivers. 
but and their offensive line is questionable, so they have to figure that out. So I think they might take a back seat for a few years. But with Mike Tomlin at the helm, I mean, such a great coach over there. So if I had to pick who was the Ravens' biggest competition in the division, still, I'd still go Cleveland. I think Cleveland, despite the injuries they're going through and how they've struggled a little bit over these last couple of weeks, I still think they have a, such a talented roster. I love what Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski are doing over there. But the mood in Baltimore right now is is great, considering where they were, what the mood was when the injuries happened beginning or before the beginning of the year. So, yeah, I, th- I think that Baltimore is in a great mood right now. Five and one with all things considered the injuries and playing Kansas City and getting that that kryptonite defeated, I, I think I think it's been a pretty good year so far, but a great year for the AFC North in general. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. How are they going to cover these wide receivers, Kevin? Um, you know, you got T. Higgins, Tyler Board, who, you know, last couple games has been more of a non-factor. Um, and then you've got Jamar Chase, like you said. Um, do you see them trying to play man-to-man and try to get after Burrow as their, you know, the way to cover um, these wide receivers? Or do you see, you know, uh, Wink Martindale kind of dropping back more zone, two, two safeties high and trying to protect the, the deep ball that uh, Cincinnati's been able to hit on here the last few weeks? You know, I I think they will play some man-to-man, but I think it will probably be a bit of zone because the Ravens' defense is a bend-don't-break unit, and that, you know, pretty much means that they'll give you short stuff, but they're not going to let you beat you deep. And Cincinnati loves to throw that deep ball. I mean, Jamar Chase has beaten countless corners, countless safeties in the back end of that secondary for huge gains, huge touchdowns. So if the Ravens can limit that, and Joe Burrow takes checkdowns, you know, maybe they'll get Tyler Boyd involved early, Joe Mixon out of the backfield. They have Chris Evans, who's a good receiving back. So I think that, you know, with those receivers, I mean, it's it's one of the best receiving trios in the league. And the Ravens have Marlon Humphrey, and they have Anthony Averett. Now, Averett had a really bad game against Indianapolis in Week 5, but before that was playing really, really well. And in Week 6 against Los Angeles, kind of recovered it away. So they have two really good corners. Jimmy Smith is going to be asked to do a lot of different things on the field. Brandon Stevens, a rookie they have in the secondary there. Tavon Young is one of the best slot cornerbacks in the league when he's completely healthy, which, you know, it seems like he is. He's played in every game this year. So the Ravens secondary is definitely a strength of this team on completely healthy. Now losing Marcus Peters is a big blow. I think that's going to hurt a little bit for sure. And it has hurt throughout the entire season. But if I had to guess, I think the Ravens are going to try to let Cincinnati kind of maybe work their way down the field a bit, give up a a couple of yards, and then in the red zone, tighten up. And that's where the Ravens play their best defense, in my opinion. So after a really good game against the Chargers, they have the momentum. And the Chargers, they have no lack, no shortage of weapons, much like Cincinnati. So it'll be interesting to see how how the Ravens end up defending the Bengals for sure. Yeah. How important is this game? You know, you see on the the schedule here something that we – Rarely, I don't think in all the years that that I've been watching NFL football going on almost 30 years here now, age myself a little bit there, Kev, but, uh, you know, four home games straight. And then all of a sudden after after that bye week and and I know it's sandwiched in there, you you go five or seven on the road. You know, some of the games are a little easier. You're at Miami, at Chicago, but then you you got a little bit of a gauntlet with, you know, the Browns and then you're at the Steelers then at the Browns then the Packers, then at the Bengals. How how important is are these next two games for Baltimore to kind of stack the wins, if you will, and give themselves a little bit of room to play with within the division, within the AFC, and that chase for that number one uh, seed in the AFC? Yeah, I, th- I think it's vitally important. You know, every game is important, definitely, but 
the division games, especially with a team like Cincinnati, who has taken the league by storm and is playing really good football right now. This is a team that you cannot take lightly. You know, you can't take any opponent in the NFL lately, but these divisional games, there's a little bit more, a bit more oomph to them because of just how, how intense they can get. And with Cincinnati, this is a team that can put up points in bunches. Now their defense has been an improved unit. They, they added a lot of key playmakers this year, which I think are going under the radar a little bit. So if this Ravens offense can get off to a fast start, I think that builds really, really well, especially if they can take away this Cincinnati run game. But you mentioned that, that, that gauntlet, I think week 12, you know, was really where the schedule becomes super difficult. Five of their last seven against divisional opponents. The other two that aren't divisional opponents are green Bay and Los Angeles, the Rams. Yeah, so that's right. That, that's really tough. And that's why, you know, even before this year started, I was talking about how the Ravens had to get off to a fast start this year. Or not necessarily had to, but it would, it would have been important. And it would have been good if they were to get off to a fast start this year. Because once you hit week 12 and you start getting into those those tougher opponents, you can afford to drop a game, you know, in week 14 to Cleveland or in week 17 to Los Angeles. If you're 5-1 and one right now, as opposed to when you're 2-4, and four, or three and three, then it becomes a little bit with, all right, is this team going to make the wild card round? What's the division looking like? Because we get to, we get to December or even early January and we're looking at tiebreakers. We're looking at seedings and wins against Kansas city wins against Indianapolis wins against Los Angeles, a win against Cincinnati would prove huge, not just for, you know, AFC wild card tiebreakers, but for division tiebreakers the Cincinnati can continue their hot stretch. So overall, this is, I think a very important game. It's at home. You know, you mentioned it. It's their third home game in a row. They play another after their bye week against Minnesota. So yeah, the Vikings. Yep. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really excited to see this game. I think it's going to be a really good one and I'm excited to see how both teams match up with each other. Yeah. I think it's, and then that's why we have, we have you on. I think it's the, uh, the AFC, definitely the AFC matchup of the week, if not the NFL matchup of the week. I know it might not be touted as that. I know most people are going to look at that, you know, Kansas city and Tennessee game, you know, tale of physicality versus uh, finesse on, on that side. But I think this AFC North matchup in my mind is, is the best of the week. One more question before we let you go here, Kev, we saw Rashad Bateman come back. Um, you know, everybody had talked about through camp and him coming out of, of uh, Minnesota in the, in the draft with, uh, with the pick from Baltimore as you know, he could be a down the field threat. We didn't see that in the first game. Um, are we going to see that moving forward? Is this something that you've seen in camp or heard about um, through the through the franchise? And can he replace the likes of a Sammy Watkins as that kind of deep threat down the field? Yeah, I think Bateman is someone who this organization is very, very excited about. And his debut in week six definitely kind of fueled the the excitement. Four receptions, 29 yards on six targets. He did have a pretty bad drop where the ball bounced off of his chest and into the waiting hands of a charger defender, which counted for Lamar Jackson's second interception of the day. But all four of his catches went for first downs. His six targets were tied for the team lead, the team high with Mark Andrews. So that's pretty good company to be with. And so it seemed like Jackson was looking his way early and often. And, you know, you mentioned Sammy Watkins. It's like they get someone back, but then another guy immediately gets injured. So, Goes down, yeah. Right. It, it, injuries have been the story this year, and they will continue to be the story. And now it's just a matter of whether Baltimore has enough firepower to combat that and get production out of other guys. And so far, the answer has been a resounding yes, and they've been very impressive. But what Bateman brings to the table is the ability to play both inside and outside. He's not your, your typical, like, burner. He doesn't run a 4-2, but he can beat you deep. 
He's a technician as a route runner and can do a lot of work over the middle of the field and is very shifty as well. So he w- he was my pick for the Ravens. I-, I targeted him for a very long time. I'm very happy they were able to get him at 27. They they get it off of Elway at 31, so that first round is looking mighty good for them so far. But they have a lot of key weapons this year. And with Bateman now on the fold, it takes attention off of Marquise Brown. It takes attention off of Andrews. Devin DuVernay and James Prochea played well. And so Bateman is going to probably have a lot of one-on-ones to work against cornerbacks and work over the middle of the field where Jackson, you know, over the course of his career has felt more comfortable throwing there, but not to say he can't throw it to the outside. So I think Bateman's going to be a huge addition for them over the second part of the year as he continues to get more snaps under his belt and continue to play a full complement. I think the sky's the limit. Uh, perfect. Kev, we'll, uh, we'll let you go now. Before you go, let our listeners know uh, where we can find you, what you have going on, and um, with all the great content that you're producing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do host and produce the Locked on Ravens podcast. That's five days a week. We put out our content Monday through Friday at 6 a.m. Eastern time. It's about 30 to 45 minutes every day of Ravens content. And, you know, we cover the latest news, you know, notes and everything related to the Ravens. And then I also am the managing editor for Ravens Wire. So I write about this team seven days a week. So pretty much eat, eat, sleep and breathe Ravens football. And you can find me on Twitter at CashRaker34. And the Lockdown Ravens account is at Lockdown Ravens. Uh, that's awesome. Well, Kev, appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. And enjoy the uh, the game this weekend. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to connect when uh, our Ravens, your Ravens and my Bills uh, have a rematch in, in the playoffs, hopefully in the AFC Championship game. Yeah, you know, I would not be shocked if that's how it went. But this was a blast. Thanks so much. No problem. Appreciate it. That was a great chat with Kevin. Absolutely amazing. First time on the Triple G podcast. We had a great time providing some great insight. I hope you enjoyed it, folks. Hope you enjoy some Week 7 NFL football. Make sure you're following us along on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've got our pick sixes out. I promise I'm going to get off the 500 slate here, folks. Um, just can't seem to uh, have a big week. Always 3-3, three and 4-2, three, and two, but we're going to uh, hit something big here in the next couple weeks. I can feel it. We're getting real tight. We're going to send you off to break. When we get back, we're going to go fast and furious in the world of golf, talk about last week's picks, talk about what's coming up on the slate, little Ricky Fowler and Rory McIlroy, and uh, we'll send you off from there. So we'll catch you on the flip side. Here comes the, here comes the, here comes the, y'all don't really want it like, yeah, here comes the, no, here comes the, real life passion for real life sports. All right, folks, welcome back from break. Hope you enjoyed the little segment there from Triple G, Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast. And we're going to talk a little world of golf as we wind down on the Europe or on the Champions Tour and the uh, the Ladies Tour. We're winding up on the PGA Tour, so let's get into it. But where else is there to start than last week at the CJ Cup, Summit Cup, Hey, nice to have Rory back in the winner's circle, his 20th victory. But Triple G cash for you. We had Taylor Gooch and Aaron Wise, um, 55 and 66 to 1. 
almost 30 plus to one on the each way. I hope you hit them up at the start of the week. It's a double cash for both of them on bet 365. So, uh, nice little week here for triple G. Hope it was a nice little week for you. Hopefully we can keep this rolling and hopefully we can get you a winner here. Uh, we're not going to give our picks for the Zozo, um, here on this podcast. Make sure you're checking them out on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on Thursday morning as they're in Japan. So we'll get you over those pick for the Zozo. Um, I believe it's a field of 78 players. Pretty solid uh, pretty solid field. So we'll get those out to you. But let's talk about this week um, in terms of what's coming up and review a little bit on last week. But before we jump up to uh, what's happening this week, nice couple stories here um, on, the, uh, on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Let's start on the Champions Tour. Hey, great to see Lee Jansen back in the win- winner circle winning the uh, SAS Championship at Preston Wood Club, like we mentioned last week. So great to see Lee Jansen. Only a couple more events uh, as they wind down on the race to the Charles Schwab Cup. And it looks like the old faithful Bernie Longer is going to be right there again, uh, taking this thing down. So as much as we're seeing the likes of Philly Mickelson and Jimmy Furyk, and eventually those guys, Jerry Kelly, those guys, Stevie Stricker, they're going to take over this Champions Tour. Um... Lee Jansen as well, Mike Weir, Alex Chaka. There's, you know, that next crop of guys. Um, they're still the old school boys. Um, and Bernard Langer's right there in the mix of it. Still steady Eddie, solid as a rock. We've seen what he can do and how he can compete uh, even around Augusta National all the way up until uh, this year. So uh, they're at the Dominion Energy, I believe, at the Country Club at Virginia this week. On to uh, the European Tour. Hey, Another nice story. We're uh, they're at the uh, Malarca Open uh, in Spain again, but we came off uh, another nice tournament on the uh, on the European Tour. They are playing at Valderrama. What a great venue! As you know, I talked about it last week and how much I love it and how it hosted the uh, the '97 Ryder Cup. But um, it showed up and showed out. Minus six at the Andalucci Masters was the winning score and uh you know i believe only 15 guys were under par yep 14 guys under par um and less uh, 20 guys 19 sorry at even or better for the entire week so valderrama is still an absolute test and an absolute beast but the winner at minus six was matthew fitzpatrick and another nice story um after a tough showing at the Ryder cup and he talked about how that fueled him and he wants to get back there and what a way to start into uh, i know it's a long process but uh hey you've already fired up a, a victory so a nice start for matthew fitzpatrick nice story there the ladies tour uh they are overseas in korea finishing up there so at the bmw so that'll be an interesting event make sure you're following along there they're coming back much like the champions tour uh heading south to play in some warmer temperatures as we move into the winter and they'll finish out their season, um, much like the Champions Tour does, on more on a calendar year type of schedule. And to the PGA Tour, hey, nice to have Rory back. And there's another, there's two guys that that were there there this week um, at the CJ Cup uh, that played together actually on Sunday, Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember which one, but I believe it was Sunday. And that's Rory McIlroy, obviously one, and Ricky Fowler too. Let's start with Rory. Um, endeared his heart 
his body, his soul to the fans and the world of golf at the Ryder Cup with, you know, the tears and emotion that we've seen. And we, and we always have known that, that Rory's been an honest and candid um, interview and person and golfer. And, and, and he's really probably one of the most enjoyable guys out there um, for, for, my, for, for me and for my opinion. But um, the game's better when Rory's winning. And and this guy's only 32 years old, and and the comments to me were so telling this week in terms of, you know, I realized that I just have to be me, and being me is good enough. We know, and we've talked about the chase that he had for distance and trying to, you know, go out and catch the shambo and, and hit it as, as far and as hard as he does. But, you know, when Rory's on his game and he's driving the ball well, you know, for a while there he was the best, and he probably still is, and you know the likes with Sergio and and Bryson's up there, and but he's pound for pound the best driver of the golf ball in the world possibly ever, and you know to realize and think you know hey I got to get better, he's now realized that hey that's good enough, and now can I round the rest of my game in, and he struggled around the greens and with the putter, and so it's nice to see him win, and and what I think Rory's got to realize is that. Hey, you're right on pace here. 32 years old, about to turn 33. You know, you're not too far behind the likes of Philly Mickelson and Byron Nelson, Tom Watson. That's pretty good fucking company. Four major championships. So the next seven to ten years for you, if you can go out there and double your win total and double your major total, you're a Hall of Fame player guaranteed he's almost hall of fame player right now if not already so you're walking away with 40 or 50 wins and you know six to ten majors that's living up to expectations and and i think that's that was the big thing for rory was you know he was this next he was the next tiger the next big thing and and it's nice to hear him now settle in being a parent getting a little bit older and I hope we see a little bit of a, an emergence from Rory and another, you know, four to six year run here where he can win some more majors and win a bunch of golf tournaments and really lament his status as one of the greatest players to ever play this game on the PGA Tour, European Tour, and worldwide. And lastly, to uh, to end off the show, hey, whether you love the orange or you hate the orange, um, the game's better with Ricky Fowler up there as well. And this guy... You know, five wins uh, overall on PJ Tour, nine worldwide. But he had a tough, a couple of real tough years. You know, 2020, um, even with the COVID, only 14 events, but he only made eight cuts. 2021 was a little better. He was he was steady, but he just wasn't getting those finishes. You know, 24 events, only got cut twice, so he made 22 cuts. But when you combine those two years, you know that's 38 events. Okay, you made 30 cuts, but only three top tens. And not a single victory, so nice to see. He like you know he's in 2022 as we as we started the schedule. He's already matched his his top ten total from last year, so really nice to see Ricky back up there. I'm really hoping he can keep it going, flip it over into the new calendar year in 2022, and really kickstart this thing, start to get back into contention at majors, and and get another few victories here and get back on the track. Same thing. He's you know. 32 years old, turning 33, so he's still young. He's still got a good 7 to 10 years left in him. I'd love to see Ricky get up to you know, 10, 12 wins and finally get that major that he's been looking for. 
Um, would hate to see a guy like Ricky Fowler leave this game as, you know, kind of like a Westwood, you know, the best player to never win a major. I don't want to see that. Nobody wants to see that. And before we leave you, shout out to all the players out there who are uh, trying to qualify for uh, for Q School as it uh, it comes around this time of year. So uh, we'll start to hit some of those stages in the Q School and qualifying. I know there's a few Canadians down there giving it a go. So best of luck to all those players. What a stressful time. And these these are guys and gals that are playing for their lives, playing for meals on the table and playing for shirts on their back. And, and you know, this isn't players on the PGA Tour that got millions of bucks. You know, like Ricky Fowler's made 40 million bucks. You know, he made another 560,000 bucks this last weekend. His career earnings over 40 million. That's not what not... That's not what's happening out on Q School. These people are playing for their lives. They're trying to get to that level so they don't have to worry. it. So hopefully it goes well for a lot of them. Love to see some great stories out there. Shout out to all the Southern Ontario golfers ending off the season. Hope you enjoy some nice weather coming up here. Get your last few rounds in before the snow starts to fly. It's a busy week. Thanks to Kevin Oystriker, host of the Locked On Ravens podcast, for joining us with a great preview and breakdown of uh, of his Ravens. We'll have him on again. Folks, get your golf in. Sit your butt down on the couch on Sundays. Enjoy some NFL football, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.